Welcome to Long Story Short. I'm Sean Witt, the Audience Development Manager at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide non-for-profit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Hello, I'm Sean Witt, here this week filling in for Ted Struley. Reporter Paul Monies continues to follow the fallout from massive charges from most Oklahoma utility customers from our winter storm in the February of 2021. Paul, there were some new revelations recently over the price of natural gas during that winter storm, wasn't there? That's right, Sean. Yeah, we, we heard last week that the Kansas Attorney General, Chris Kobach, um, has actually filed a lawsuit against one of the energy trading companies who was active during that storm called Macquarie. Uh, the AG is alleging that uh, Kansas customers were overcharged by at least $50 million during that storm by actions from Macquarie, which is one of the top five sellers of natural gas in the United States. What exactly is the Kansas Attorney General alleging in the lawsuit? Well, so Kobach is saying that... Um, Macquarie had such a large position in the Kansas trading hub for natural gas that it was able to manipulate the market uh, before and after a couple of days of the storm, uh, basically allowing uh, prices to get up to about $600 per unit, which was way higher than the, the original prices before the storm, about 2 to $3 a unit. Um, now, there's our separate trading hubs around the country. Uh, there's a regional one in Oklahoma where that, that, those prices got up to $1,200 a unit. That's the same energy trader that also sold Oklahoma utilities during the storm, right? That's right. Yeah. Macri sold about $154 million in natural gas to Oklahoma utilities during that same February storm. Uh, most of it, about $119 million, went to Oklahoma natural gas for heating uh, and industrial purposes, but also about $15 million or so went to Oklahoma Gas and Electric and Public Service uh, Company of Oklahoma. Uh, we asked those utilities what they thought about this lawsuit. Uh, ONG had really no comment to say on other companies' operations. OGE said that they were um, hopeful, and they kept the lights on during the storm, um, and that they were kind of victims of the prices as well, and had to pass those costs on to customers. What does Oklahoma's new Attorney General Gettner Drummond say about the Kansas lawsuit? Well, we asked uh, him for comment. He didn't say much, but he did say he's monitoring the lawsuit, and he's been reviewing similar circumstances in Oklahoma, so there was some hopeful signs for a lot of customers, but of course, it's still early in that side of things. The Kansas lawsuit was filed under a federal law and not under a state price gouging statute, wasn't it? How are those laws different? That's right. Yeah, the, the uh, Kansas Attorney General said that uh, the manipulation came out of the Federal Commodities Exchange Act, uh, and it is a federal market for natural gas. There's no state regulation of prices. And so that was an important point to make. Uh, we've kind of gone back and forth in Oklahoma on whether or not there was price gouging during the winter storm. Uh, our state statute for price gouging was not clear, uh, according to some folks, including former Attorney General um, John O'Connor. Um, and of course, they said there was an emergency in effect and that price gouging statute was not uh, counting for natural gas gas. Now, the legislature has since acted and the House actually this week passed a law clarifying that natural gas is exempt in price gouging. Uh, that passed the Republican House by about 80 to 17 votes. Is the Oklahoma Corporation Commission doing any investigations into fuel prices from the 2021 storm? Yeah, well, one of the commissioners, uh, Bob Anthony, has been a longtime critic of utilities actions during the storm and has called for multiple investigations on both price and whether or not the utilities acted wisely during that storm. Um, and he's 
also uh, kind of said that this lawsuit opens up the action in Oklahoma, that we can go after this from a, a state perspective, from their attorney general. And just this week, uh, his fellow commissioners followed suit with letters or, or press releases asking our attorney general to look into further price manipulations in that market during the, net, the uh, winter storm in 2021. Um, now, I will note that um, the huge costs that Oklahoma ca- customers are paying for those storm costs uh, over decades, uh, extra bill charges, there are clawback provisions in those um, charges that allow for any kind of um, credits to customers if there was some price manipulation in those markets. Who else is looking at fuel prices? So we heard early on during the storm that the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission is looking at price manipulation in, in, uh, in the markets for natural gas. Now, the, the feds are notoriously tight-lipped. Uh, they've had an update since then uh, last year that said they're still investigating, and we're really not going to hear much on that until they actually file charges in court, if any. Thanks, Paul. You can read more Paul Money's story about the Kansas lawsuit and all of his other investigative work on our website at oklahomawatch.org. Reporter Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch, recently wrote about the turnover at the State Board of Education. One newly appointed board member resigned before ever attending a meeting. Jennifer, what did the governor's office announce recently about the State Board of Education? Late last week, the governor's office did announce that one of our state board members, Marla Hill, who has yet to attend a meeting, was just appointed a few months ago, um, has been replaced. She resigned and the governor made a new appointment to fill her seat, um, a a Guyman resident by the name of Katie Quebedo. What had you already learned through reporting? So I attended the last state board meeting and there were um, there was talk at the meeting, first of all, of why uh, Marla Hill had yet to attend. I know one of the reporters even asked um, Ryan Walters, the state superintendent, like, hey, where's where's Ms. Hill? Um, he said he didn't know. So there were already questions about that. And I was already um, looking into um, her situation. There was also some talk of whether Trent Smith was planning to resign. He is one of the longest serving board members at this point. What do we know about Mar- Marla Hill? Um, so part of the reporting that I have done on her um, was related to her residence. And the governor's office didn't say this exactly, but uh, some folks have talked about this, that this may be why she hadn't served. Um, on her application, she listed um, an address in Kingfisher County. Uh, she does own a business um, with her husband in Kingfisher County and was represented to serve that district, District 3. Um, but she also owns a home in Edmond. And so there were some questions of whether she actually lived um, at the Kingfisher address or lived in Edmond where she would not uh, be serving District 3. Who's her replacement? Katie Quebedo. She's a, an early childhood educator. Um, she's worked at a private school uh, and um, she lives in Guyman. You mentioned Trent Smith earlier. Did, did he resign? He did not. Um, I know there was some talk of that. I called him last week, um, had a conversation with him. Um, he said, you know, he, when um, in January, when they made these new board appointments, some folks had to switch districts because of redistricting. Um, and Trent was one of those. And he um, 
they asked him, you know, the governor's office, do you want to continue to serve on this board? He said he thought about it and decided that, yes, he did want to continue serving. So they moved him to a different district. You wrote that there's a lack of public education experience on the board right now. Have any of the board members worked as teachers or superintendents? No, they have not. And a few of them have some kind of, um, you know, experience in education kind of at an arm's reach, uh, like a parent who is an educator or, um, you know, something like that. But Right now, none of the board members have ever been a public school teacher or a superintendent, um, and and they don't bring that experience, um, which we typically see on the State Board of Education. Uh, experience isn't a requirement? No, it's actually not. But we do have... Um, a state rep, uh, Mark McBride, who is working on legislation that would add some seats and those seats on the board would be required to have that experience. I think um, he recognizes that this setup is not ideal um, where, you know, these folks don't really know the ins and outs of how schools are run and, and kind of what needs to be done um, besides, you know, like I said, their experiences as a parent of a public school student or something like that doesn't necessarily mean they know how the school runs. Thanks, Jennifer. You can read Jennifer's coverage of the State Board of Education and all her other investigative work at oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also sign up for her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Reporters Whitney Bryan and Ashlyn Huffman wrote about a class action lawsuit filed against state mental health officials last week. Whitney, who covers mental health for Oklahoma Watch, is here to talk to us about that lawsuit and who's behind it. Let's start there, Whitney. Who filed the lawsuit? Well, the lawsuit was filed on behalf of four people who are severely mentally ill and who are incarcerated in Oklahoma County, Tulsa County, and Comanche County jails. They were arrested um, charged but not tried or sentenced because they have been found incompetent to stand trial. So at this point, they are all still presumed innocent um, and their cases have been halted. They can't move forward yet. So these are a 42-year-old woman who, who was arrested during a trespassing call. She has spent 239 days in jail so far. A uh, 42-year-old man who has waited 348 days, so nearly a year, um, in jail. He uh, was picked up on uh, charges for allegedly kicking a security guard at a local hospital. A 46-year-old 40, Comanche County man faces charges for destruction of property, breaking and entering, uh, defacing a house of worship. He broke some windows at a church. And he has been in jail for 182 days. And then a 22-year-old man has been in Oklahoma County Jail. He was charged with second-degree burglary and grand larceny uh, back in July for the theft of a guitar and damaging some plumbing fixtures while he was trying to enter a, a neighboring apartment unit. So he's been in jail for about 86 days. And what are they claiming? 
Well, basically their right to treatment. So they've been found incompetent by the court, which means they are owed competency restoration. So they're saying that right to treatment is being violated because they're being left in jails that are not designed and not equipped to care for them. So the claim is that their 14th Amendment rights to due process um, are being violated. Jails are meant to be temporary holding cells, not permanent treatment facilities. And so the claim that the attorneys are making in the lawsuit is that these folks are being punished only because they suffer from mental illness. Tell us a little bit more about the two officials named in the lawsuit. Well, Carrie Slatton Hodges, she's the commissioner of the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, which means she basically oversees all state-funded mental health treatment, including uh, a facility called the Oklahoma Forensic Center in Veneta. That's where Oklahomans who have been found incompetent to stand trial are supposed to go to receive their treatment. So the other person named in the lawsuit is the director of that facility in Venita, Crystal Hernandez, and she runs that center, is responsible for that type of care. And what did they say about the claims made in the lawsuit? Well, the Department of Mental Health is saying uh, they disagree with this premise of the lawsuit. In an emailed statement, a spokesperson for the department said that they're starting to provide some of these treatment services inside the jail setting. So they're not just not receiving treatment at all while they're in the jail waiting for a bed to open up. Uh, The department is also encouraging courts right now to take advantage of diversion programs or even, you know, make some exceptions, allowing some of these people to be transferred to community mental health facilities instead of leaving them in jail. But that's up to the courts at this point, not to the Department of Mental Health. Once someone has been assessed and found incompetent to stand trial, like in these four cases, what's supposed to happen? Well, uh, that competency restoration process that I mentioned earlier, that's really the next step. So that means that behavioral health professionals, you know, um, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, that type of thing, they work with these people in an attempt to help stabilize them. The goal is that they could regain the ability to aid in their defense and then could participate in the criminal justice system. Their cases could move forward if that were to happen. So that likely includes things like medication for their illness. Um, In more complex cases, they may be scheduled uh, to transport to the Oklahoma Forensic Center for that additional treatment and training. And that process can take uh, varying amounts of time. And of course, it doesn't always work either. And so in that case, the person may be found uh, unable to regain competency, and then they would remain in that facility in Veneta where they could receive mental health treatment, but also be detained. Where was the breakdown for the Oklahomans involved in this lawsuit? Well, essentially, there are not enough resources to treat everyone who needs this level of care. According to the lawsuit, these folks are in jails, which often worsen mental health conditions because there are not enough beds or staff available at the facility in Veneta where they could go and receive this uh, competency restoration. And this is not a new problem. Uh, Actually, in November, the U.S. Department of Justice launched an investigation 
to determine whether Oklahoma provides sufficient community-based mental health services. So those are, um, you know, services within our communities, uh, counseling and uh, mental health care of, of all sorts to people across the state. Specifically, they're looking at Oklahoma County. So the concern is that we are not, as a state, um, providing the care that's needed, that people have a right to, and therefore people are being admitted unnecessarily to psychiatric facilities or in some cases police contact that then leads to jails and prisons. You've written a few stories this year about people who died awaiting mental health services in jail. Remind us about some of these folks and how they fit into this lawsuit. Well, uh, first, I want to say none of the folks I'm about to talk about are part of this lawsuit, but it is certainly related to what the lawsuit is claiming, this idea that we're not providing the care um, in Oklahoma that people have a right to. So there were two women who were waiting for mental health assessments in the Cleveland County Jail when they died in December. Uh, Shannon Hanchett and Catherine Milano have been a, a large topic of conversation for the state of Oklahoma recently. Um, they had not been found incompetent to stand trial. They were waiting on the evaluation that could determine that for them uh, when they died. And then, of course, there's Ronald Given. He died in a Pottawatomie County jail where he was exhibiting signs of a mental health crisis when detention officers came into his cell and started trying to restrain him. That led to a six-minute altercation that eventually led to his death. And then there was recently a man who died by suicide in the Oklahoma County Jail as well. So this is something that we're seeing um, repeated instances of people with mental illness or with signs of, of mental health struggles, um, either being injured or in some cases dying uh, as a result of being in jails where the treatment they need is not provided. And those four Oklahomans are not alone, right? I mean, this is a class action lawsuit, which means plaintiffs represent a group of people who are facing the same plight. Do we know how many people in Oklahoma are waiting for this care? Well, the estimate based on the lawsuit is that there are at least 100 Oklahomans who have already been found incompetent to stand trial, but who remain in jails waiting for a bed to open up, waiting for resources to receive the treatment that they need. So uh, we think there's at least 100 Oklahomans uh, who could potentially join in this lawsuit. Thanks, Whitney. You can read about that class action lawsuit as well as all of Whitney Nashland's investigative work on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we are grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Sean Witt. Thanks for listening.